We are here with Sarah Stern, who is the founder and president of the Endowment for Middle East Truth, uh, an influential pro-Israel think tank in Washington. Thanks for joining the Discourse podcast, Sarah. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Our pleasure, too. Uh, before we get into the issues, there's, as there's a lot to talk about, mind telling our listeners what differentiates Emmet from groups like Stand With Us and the Zionist Organization of America? Okay. Um, Stand With Us is basically um, directed towards college students to try to fight BDS and, you know, battles on college campuses. Um, the Zionist Organization of America and Emet have very, very similar positions, but we have much more of an active presence on Capitol Hill. Um, and our, our, um, our policies are very, very much the same, but um, our tone tends to be a little different. Mind elaborating on the tone part? Um, well, I really, I, I come at this as a psychologist, and I believe that when people are presented with the facts, um, they would like, they, they're not evil, and, you know, we, we lead them to draw their own conclusions about, um, you know, how Israel is a fellow democracy and how, you know, they have the right to protect their civilian population. And, you know, so we tend um, to be a bit less acerbic and um, a little bit calmer in our presentation. Okay, well, so a lot to talk about. Your organization came out with a statement condoning uh, yesterday's embassy move, um, which was historic. I want to read part of uh, uh, the statement, quote, having a Jewish state in Israel without the recognition of Jerusalem it's as, it, uh, as its capital is like having a body without a soul, end quote. Why does Israel need recognition of what it has for a long time called its capital? Um, it is really um, an, an, a historic injustice that was just corrected yesterday because Every single other nation in the world has had the freedom to select where, what city to designate as their own capital. When um, finally the Jewish people returned to the land after 2,000 years of wandering in the diaspora, you know, Jerusalem, which has always been a very, very regnant part of our identity and has really kept us alive through those dark years of the diaspora, that, of course, you know, would be the, the city that was designated by Israel's founders as the capital. Um, you know, that's where they put their parliament, the Knesset, their president's house, um, their um, Jewish agency, which is the agency that deals with all of the um, Jews in the diaspora, it's all of their major, major organs of government have been there. And to not have that recognized has been, as I say, a historic injustice. It made Israel feel like they were a subgroup um, alone in the community of nations. And regarding the violent protests in Gaza, 
Should Israel yeah. be worried about combating not just that, but also uh, the Golan, the north, where last week Iran launched rockets uh, and Israel retaliated? In other words, a two-front war. Right. Israel is worried about this. And I think Israel knew all along because Hamas made it very, very clear what their goals were in the South. Um, in the words of the Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar, their goal was to quote unquote, cheer out the hearts of the Israelis. Um, they have been um, doing everything they can to propagandize their population, they, to come to the borders, to come armed with um, metal um, or wire cutting scissors, sometimes with rifles, with live ammunition, with burning tires, with kites engraved with swastikas, with firebombs attached to them. Um, some have even been seen brandishing hatchets to penetrate through the border and to kill as many Jews as possible. Um, what has been awful to see is how the media has allowed um, Hamas um, to um, basically seduce them into saying that this was, you know, these were peaceful protesters against the um, move of the embassy to Jerusalem. That was just a pretense. What they wanted, they have been planning this all along. This is now the seventh or the eighth week of these violent protests. These are not just peaceful demonstrators who are acting like a bunch of Cub Scouts who want to penetrate the border and then sing Kumbaya. What they want is to inflict as much violence and death and terrorism and mayhem on the people of Israel. And according to Article 41 of the United Nations Charter, every single nation has a responsibility to protect its civilian population and any nation would behave the same way. Now, in terms of the North, yes, unfortunately, because of the Iranian nuclear deal, which has enriched, empowered, and emboldened Iran, um, Syria now has right above the Golan Heights, or had, you know, um, this huge infrastructure of military bases um, with um, missiles. Fortunately, fortunately, when um, um, people under Bashar Assad's regime in Syria tried to attack Israel from the from just north of the Golan Heights, Israel was able to almost eliminate almost all of these this military presence. But um, we know that there will always be a ready, willing, and able um, army of people from the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and Hezbollah that will be willing um, to die um, for, for their cause, and that is to eliminate the state of Israel. So yes, Israel is very, very well aware that um, they're in a very precarious situation. They've always been in a precarious situation. Sometimes they've managed to delude themselves that peace is just around the corner, but they've had a huge reality tester, you know, recently, and they know that um, it, it has been a long, hard slog, and it's probably going to continue for many years to come. 
And speaking of uh, Israel retaliating in Syria, what's your reaction to the Trump strategy in Syria? Yes, the Trump administration has withdrawn from the Iran deal, which I would love to get your um, take on. Uh, but what, it, what should the next steps be regarding not just sanctions, but also its presence in Syria, where the administration says they're there uh, just to fight ISIS? Yeah. Um... We've believed, and we've written about this, and we've believed for a long time, that um, the um, entire um, nation-state of Syria has been imploding from within. Um, and unfortunately, when Sykes and Pico in 1918 wanted to just draw lines to divide up the spoils of World War One and create nation-states, they tried to smush together these tribes that really had nothing in common with one another. And Syria is a failed state right now. Um, and we believe that because um, Iran has been so empowered, um, they have used a lot of their wealth um, to rush into Syria, but so has Erdogan from Turkey. And they, you know, the way that they have been behaving has been nothing short of ghastly, especially towards their own Kurdish population and what they did to the people in Efrin. Um, and we think that Putin is, does not want to really invade, but they want to flex their muscles and bring back the Cold War. So we think that it would be a stabilizing influence if there was a sustained presence in Syria and that um, this is not over just if ISIS is defeated. Um, we, we believe that, you know, just as we've had troops in Germany since World War II, that America is a stabilizing presence and that we need to sustain a force in Syria. Uh, and do you think the Trump administration will withdraw from Syria or will Saudi Arabia, um, you know, it, pony up and supply money and uh, the troops? I'm not sure about the Saudis. Or, you know, they, they have, you know, vast coffers of wealth. They haven't used very much of it to help any of their fellow um, Muslims throughout the world. They certainly could have helped the Palestinian situation a long time ago. Um, I think that America has always, in the words of Winston Churchill, has always ended up doing the right thing after they exhaust every other possibility. And I think, mm -hmm. I, I think ultimately, I think that President Trump will probably understand the situation and will not withdraw our, our troops from Syria, but there will be a sustained presence there. Um, and I do think that historically, America has been a force for good. And, you know, you look at the isolationism that we and, um, experienced right after World War One, um, and we had sustained terrible losses. You know, if there were, I think, 60 million people that were killed in World War One. Um, and here, you know, there's nothing, nothing close to that. But America, you know, just looks at the last wars that were fought and we want it, we have this isolationist tendency to retreat and withdraw. 
Yet when we retreat and withdraw, that kind of opens up a vacuum for all these other um, nefarious forces in the world to to sweep into, you know, like Erdogan, like um, the mullahs of Iran, like Putin. So um, I do believe that ultimately America will do the right thing when it comes to um, Syria and 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 will do the right thing when it comes to being, you know, that shining city on the hill, as Ronald Reagan called it, you know, a force for good in the world. And speaking of doing the right thing, what should, now that the Trump administration has withdrawn the U.S. from the Iran deal, what should be the next steps? Well, I think there's going to be secondary um, sanctions imposed on um, those countries and companies that want to do business with Iran. Um, and I heard that Boeing has already decided um, to withdraw um, the manufacturer of its airplanes that they were going to sell to Iran. I think that when faced with the choice of doing business with this trillion dollar economy that we have in the United States as opposed to a billion dollar economy that they have in Iran, most countries and most companies, even those um, lovely countries in the E3, um, Britain, Germany, and France, will end up um, choosing to do business with us as opposed to with the Islamic Republic of Iran. And quickly following up on that, what do you say to those um, who say, oh, the Iran deal, you know, you know, has put a bit of a buffer um, in terms of Iran developing a nuclear weapon? Well, it's just false. <laughs> we certainly know from the treasure trove um, that the idea or um, the Israeli intelligence, um, the Mossad and the Shin Bet um, captured, um, which was um, revealed by Prime Minister Netanyahu about two weeks ago, we know that um, they never had any intention of stopping their um, nuclear weapons program. The first, the first um, line of the um, JCPOA, the Joint um, Comprehensive Plan of Action, says that Iran agrees to stop all, all of its nuclear activity. And we know that's blatantly false, but if you look at the deal itself, they asked Iran to not use their old centrifuges, but just to replace them with their new centrifuges. You know, that's like saying, get rid of your old iPhones, but you can just do research and development on new iPhones. You know, and the centrifuges were, they never stopped enriching uranium. Um, we know that um, there was a very, very limited access that um, the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Administration, was given, and um, and we know that the Iranians insisted that if they call something a military site, it, it was off limits to the IAEA. So, you know, if I were an Iranian and I wanted to hide something, where would I hide it? I would hide it in a military site. So the whole thing was a charade. Um, you know, we know that um, President Obama and John Kerry just, you know, wanted a deal at any price and they were groveling. And um, this, you know, this was probably, this will probably go down in history 
as the worst foreign um, policy agreement um, ever brokered in, in history, U.S. or otherwise. Yeah, well, actually, I wrote um, in the National Discourse course <laughs> that actually this deal was the worst since Munich 1938. Exactly, exactly. And, and I'm sorry, what? Oh, no, yeah, I totally agree, yeah. Yeah. And speaking of Obamacare, um, on top of these recent um, moves by the Trump administration, uh, topped off yesterday with uh, Deputy Press Secretary Raj Shah saying that Israel has the right to defend itself and that it's Hamas that's behind these riots. Um, what do you see um, between these two administrations? Is it like night and day? Yes, <laughs> exactly. It's it's like night and day. I mean, I, I'm sometimes I feel like I I woke up and I've gone to heaven. The contrast couldn't <laughs> be any greater. It's wonderful, but I really caution against triumphalism. Although you know, after two thousand years, we finally came back to Israel, and finally we've we've had our our embassy recognized. You know, in Jerusalem. You know, so we're we're allowed a short moment, a celebratory moment to bask in the glory. But I feel that, first of all, eventually there is going to be a Democratic president. And I I fear that, um, you know, the parties have become so polarized that, um, you know, and that the base of the Democratic Party is so pro-Palestinian that, you know, this might some of these wonderful, um, wonderful advances might be undone. I also fear that um, even though Israel is certainly, you know, winning in terms of the actual battle against Hamas in the South, we are absolutely losing the public relations war because the um, youngsters of Hamas have been so cynically exploited by their leaders um, that they are willing to be used as human shields and cannon fodder and then um, we get headlines like we did in the washington post and the new york times basically you know with the split screen phenomena you know showing the the jerusalem embassy opening and talking about um the lack of proportionality you know, and this is not a matter of proportionality. Every every nation has a right to defend its civilian population. So we're, um, you know, for every every win that we have, there, you know, is a cautionary moment. It brings me back to 1948 when um, the state of Israel, the vote in um, was just announced, and you see these people in Tel Aviv, you know, listening to a radio at the vote, and then this moment of jubilation. But they knew that the next moment they were going to have to fight a war because they were going to be invaded by Arab armies on all sides. And we know that, you know, this is a celebratory moment and we could bask in its glory, but that there's um, a lot of stormy clouds just beyond the horizon for the state of Israel. So in other words, Israel and the Jewish people cannot be complacent. 
Never. <laughs> never, <laughs> never. <laughs> it's tough to be a Jew, and it's tough to be a pro-Israel Jew. And it's tougher for those that live in Israel that have to put their lives on the line constantly. And my second to last question is, New York University has been subjected to a couple recent anti-Semitic incidents, one of them being a letter signed by 53 campus organizations calling on the university to stop supporting pro-Israel groups on campus like Torchpack and Realize Israel. What's your reaction? Um, it's really sad how the left has dominated and monopolized the space. You know, freedom of speech is not this rigid orthodoxy of the left to determine who has the freedom of speech and who has the freedom, uh, the right of assembly and the right to convene. Um, I think it's a terrible, terrible misreading of the First Amendment of the Constitution. And um, it's tragic. It's tragic that we have, you know, so many impressionable young students who have fallen in love with the Palestinian cause and, you know, have never actually listened to the incitement that the Hamas leaders and even the Fatah leaders subject their people to and um, feel that, you know, the best thing that young people could do with their energy and their idealism is to protest the right of um, university students to decide which club to join. And just to follow up, yesterday more than 60 civil rights and education groups uh, like yours um, wrote letters to the heads of Columbia, NYU, and other universities. Mind quickly elaborating on that? Um, yeah. Um, again, you know, this is basically um, to allow students to have their own organizations um, and for people to understand we in the United States have a definition of anti-Semitism that our own State Department has been using all around the world you know um, which is the Natan Sharansky 3D definition that you know you're I, we should not hold Israel to a double standard we should not demonize Israel and we should not delegitimize Israel. Um, and that, you know, is good enough for, for one department of the United States government. It should be good enough for all departments. And unfortunately, our many of our universities um, somehow are blinded again by this knee-jerk love of the Palestinian cause and, you know, they let many organizations and universities and even professors engage in anti-Semitic activity. And it's just wrong. What about free speech? Uh, free speech is totally overlooked. To yeah, again, you know, I, and our universities have always, always been subjected to this. The very first institutions um, when um, Nazi Germany first became popular in Germany was um, what were the universities. I know that um, um, who's, um, Martin Heidegger, um, who was just a philosophy graduate student, fired his professor Husserl for being Jewish. And unfortunately, you know, 
students are young and you know they've got a lot of energy and a lot of passion and it's been misdirected um, to be used against the free speech of conservative students or pro-Israel students throughout the country. And I think one day, you know, in the history of ideas, this is going to be a very, very long and sad chapter that somebody has to write about. And my final question is, here at the National Discourse, we're about publishing articles from both sides of the political and ideological spectrum. What's your reaction to the current state of political discourse, especially as it pertains to Iran, Israel, and other related issues? Well, we don't, we don't seem to be able to have a fair chance of getting our ideas across to the mainstream media. I mean, it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm real careful about I, what I write. I, you know, dot every I and across every T. There, you know, um, there's the proverbial snowball's chance in hell that anything that I write, which is in defense of the state of Israel, will ever get into the Washington Post or the New York Times. So, you know, there is certainly not a fair and balanced media nowadays. So I'm, I'm really happy that there's an organization like the National Discourse that's trying to get both sides. Thank you very much. Um, and thank you for your time. Greatly appreciate it, Sarah. It's our pleasure. Thank you so much.